This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you, Chris. I am going to warn our listeners in advance, this is going to be in the wonky bucket for Definitely. sure. But yeah, why don't you tell them what we've got teed up today, Chris? We thought, and, and by we thought, maybe I thought, Kurt, that it would be great to do a little bit of a history and education on you know, what we'll call some landmark securities cases related to the Securities and Exchange Commission itself, some of the guiding principles that have dictated recent Supreme Court decisions, case developments, as well as some of those tried and true cases that even your friendly neighborhood accountant now knows by name. You know, you may have heard about the Howey <laughs> test when it relates to, to crypto. So we wanted to talk a bit about and flesh some of these ideas out that, that us and our guests have, have really chatted about over the past two years. Dive a little bit deeper into some of these decisions across a variety of, of court systems, right? Some at the Supreme Court, like we said, but a few at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second, Fifth, and Ninth Circuits, as well as some of the blockbuster cases that we've seen come across the transom in the past few years. I know, Kurt, just thinking of some of the ones that we've touched on briefly, uh, Kokesh has been a, a biggie. I think that was 2017. Yeah. A digital Realty has definitely gotten some play, as well as Lucia, Lorenzo, and Lou. I don't know if the commission was going for alliteration in the cases they brought, <laughs> but those have definitely all fallen within the past few years. And I know kind of some of these ideas dictate, maybe Kurt, some of the, the cases that I know you're watching closely yeah. that are coming up here in the next few months and into 2023. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a, a busy few years for the SEC, at least at the Supreme Court. And you know, listeners have heard us talk about a lot of these cases to one level of detail or another. And yeah, we are watching a few right now. I think a lot of folks are watching the Cochrane case, the Jarchese case, the Romerol case. We're going to actually be talking about one or more of those in a couple of weeks with former SEC Commissioner Troy Peretti's. He's going to come on and give us a little bit of a look forward in terms of what we think the, the SEC or the Enforcement Division might look like the rest of this year and, and in future years. But yeah, I think, you know, Chris, we were kind of talking about some of the things we've discussed on the show, how it shapes the SEC's regulatory program, their enforcement program, and thought maybe it would be helpful just to look again at some of those cases, because I think when we walk through them, you'll see that over the years, these cases have answered some of the very key, some of the foundational questions yeah. in securities regulation, things like how much deference do we owe the SEC to interpret the federal securities laws? What even is a security? Yeah. <laughs> Who makes statements for, for purposes of a securities fraud claim? What is the statute of limitations, right? Now, of course, there are tons and tons of cases out there mm -hmm. that get it. Some, some narrower issues. But it's helpful sometimes to just look at these building blocks and say, you know, what do these cases even stand for? And so I think, you know, whether you're a seasoned practitioner or maybe one of the students that I know tunes in from time to time, this should be helpful just to kind of take a look back at some of those, as I say, foundational cases that we've seen over the years. I just want to drop a note up top. As is often the case, we're going to focus on some of the issues, certainly some of the cases that bear principally on the SEC's authority to act. There is, of course, a robust body of case law out there that speaks to what private litigants can do. You know, for example, there are a bunch of cases that interpret and apply aspects of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 95, the PSLRA. We're not really going to touch on, yeah. on those today. I mean, some of, the, some of the issues we'll talk about may play in that space, too. But we're really thinking about this from an SEC perspective. So with that, Chris, any final thoughts before we dive in? Yeah, I think the one thing that many of our listeners maybe have not heard is our disclaimer at the end of the episode where anything that we say related to these cases is neither legal nor accounting advice. So be sure to listen for an informational and educational perspective only. Love it. All 
right, Kurt, you talked about hitting the big rocks here. Just, you know, what, if you could in, in five or 10 words, just, you know, give me, what is what is a security, right? If you could tell me what a security is, that'd be, short and sweet is best for our listeners, so go ahead. Yeah, you said five or 10 minutes or five or 10 <laughs> oh, okay. words. Okay, we're Sorry. expanding, yeah. we're expanding, yeah. <laughs> we're expanding. I mean, what is a security? It's, you know, somebody is investing in a, in a product with the expectation that they are going to earn some kind of profit or dividend largely through the result of the work of others, right? I think that's a quick take on, on yeah. Howie. But there's obviously a lot of debate. You know, what is a security? That's the first question we're going to deal with today. Mm -hmm. What is a security? You know, I think we're starting to see folks wanting to draw lines now yeah. as we think more about, about digital asset securities, you know, which are distinct from cryptocurrencies or digital assets, perhaps, right? The SEC and Chair Gensler are trying to carve out this separate category. Even setting aside the cryptocurrency question, I think we need to think about what is a security more broadly. Kurt, obviously our listeners know this kind of push and pull between regulators and, and the market about, specifically in this crypto digital asset security space, about what you call yourself may not apply to how you should mm -hmm. be regulated. Did we see a significant amount of back and forth over being classified as a security, say, prior to the year 2007 when the Satoshi memo came out? Yeah, I mean, I think there have always been questions, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going we're gonna to talk about, I mean, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Howie for a few minutes today, <laughs> right? And most of our listeners will be familiar with it. We're also going to talk about Reeves, uh, which is a much more recent case, thinking about what is a security. But these issues pop up from time to time. I mean, I know I spent a lot of time thinking about what is a security in the context of the Allen Stanford Ponzi scheme yeah. a few years ago. You know, his entity was selling certificates of deposit, CDs, and the question was whether or not they were sort of sufficiently linked to securities to fall into the broader mm -hmm. bucket of securities, right? So these things absolutely from time happen from time to time as new products filter into the market. Great. Well, Kurt, let's jump into, or maybe we'll stroll into our favorite Orange Grove and, and talk about the, the Howie case here, which, as many of our listeners know, is SEC VWJ Howie, which dates back 75 years, which yeah, may not seem to more, be the most, yeah. like you said, much more wonky than fresh, we'll put it in that way. <laughs> and in Howie, the Supreme Court held that the offer of a land sales and service contract was a, quote, investment contract, which classifies as a security for the purposes of the 33 Act, and that the use of the mail and interstate commerce in the offer and sale of these securities was a violation of Section 5 of that Act. Uh, and Kurt, this obviously, not only just the, the ruling from the Supreme Court, but this really led to some guiding principles about securities and what we all now call the Howey Test. Yeah, that's right. So what was at issue in that case was what the court called investment contracts, which, you know, under the securities laws, under the 33 Act, can qualify as securities. So just step back for folks who don't know about the Howey case. In that case, Howey, W.J. Howey Company, sold tracts of citrus groves to buyers in Florida. Those buyers would then lease back the land to Howey. The company's staff would tend the groves and sell the fruit on behalf of the owners, and both parties, the company and the investors, would share in the revenue. Most of the folks who were investing in Howie didn't have any experience in agriculture. They weren't out, you know, growing mm -hmm. their own orange trees at home and, you know, selling the fruit. And that meant that they really had to lean on the expertise of the folks in the company to make this a profitable enterprise. Howie, when it was going out and selling these interests in the company, didn't register them as, as securities or didn't register the transactions with the SEC, which ultimately caused the SEC to get involved and the litigation that comes, comes through resulting in the Howie test. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court decided that these investment contracts were, in fact, securities. And in reaching that conclusion, the court ruled that a particular product or investment instrument would be a security if it was a contract, transaction, or scheme whereby a person invests his money in a common enterprise and is led to expect profits solely from the efforts of others. So that's sort of the the test I was trying to simplify a little bit at the beginning yeah, of yeah. this, Chris, right? A little more than five <laughs> words, but I think simple enough for right. most. So you, you've put your money into something with an expectation of getting some kind of 
profit out of it, but you're really relying on other people to do it, right? This is sort of the, the classic case you see when you invest your money in a public company. I'm investing my money in the company and expecting them to go out and make whatever widgets or offer whatever services they do in hopes that the business enterprise will be profitable and pay me some kind of dividend. That That's the most traditional way to think about it. I mean, now sometimes I think people think about directionally are stocks going up or stocks going down and the way that I'm going to make money is by buying low and selling high. You know, I, we still sort of think about it the same way, right? I'm expecting to get some kind of profit because I've invested my money in something where other folks are going to do all the work to help me get the money. You know, I think we found, why don't you read this, Chris, because we did find this interesting little tidbit from the SEC's Strategy Hub for Innovation and Financial Technology, otherwise known as FinHub, but I think it crystallizes this concept pretty well. Quote, the U.S. Supreme Court's Howey case and subsequent case law have found that a, quote, investment contract, end quote, exists when there is an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profits to be derived from the effort of others. The so-called Howey test applies to any contract, scheme, or transaction, regardless of whether it has any of the characteristics of typical securities. The focus of the Howey analysis is not only on the form and terms of the instrument itself, but also on the circumstances surrounding the instrument and the manner in which it is offered, sold, or resold, which includes secondary market shares. Therefore, issuers and other persons and entities engaged in the marketing, offer, sale, resale, or distribution of any digital asset will need to analyze the relevant transactions to determine if the federal securities laws apply, end quote. Again, that's from the SEC's FinHub, leaning heavily on some of the things we've talked about already, but really pointing that cannon directly at the digital asset world about how those items should be treated. That analysis, Kurt, I know is not a an, an easy black and white stake in the ground, especially as these products continue to... Yeah innovate, uh, if you will. I'm sure that's a word they would use, right, in in terms of the investment world. I think that we've spoken at length on previous episodes about how we feel the current commission under Chairman Gary Gensler Mm -hmm. feels about their role in the digital asset securities space. It's just about whether you qualify in that <laughs> right. space, right? If you def- if you feel you should be defined that way. We also want to warn our listeners, please, please, please do not attempt to invest in Howie Coin. <laughs> Howie Coin is no longer trading and, and has been barred from all of the relevant exchanges. A, a reference to, God, this must have been what, four yeah, or five years while. ago, Kurt? Yeah, where the SEC put out some some of those kind of phishing type emails where they asked folks to to click over and invest in their Howie Coin site. Obviously, that was an educational activity from the SEC to say this is not really a an investment purpose for a crypto enterprise. But you know, this this is ongoing, right? Yeah. Like we talked about, the Howie test itself is is something that is debated and litigated regularly. Obviously, come to the forefront here in the past few years as crypto has gained in popularity and, and how those things should be traded. And I know you know our contemporaries in the market really do a lot of work in this space about if, if securities regulations apply to whatever distributed ledger or whatever coin or token your your firm has invented or, or is utilizing. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Howie still sort of seems to be the benchmark. It's, it's the one that we tend to talk about probably the most, mm-hmm. but close on its heels, as I mentioned, is another case called Reeves that I think we're starting to hear a lot more about. Certainly in recent years, it has come back in the conversation in a way that at least it wasn't in my conversations earlier in my career. And I think a yeah. lot of that has to do again with you know sort of the explosion of digital assets and digital asset securities and, and folks trying to figure out how to how to answer this this question or solve this riddle about you know what what is a security and what is not? So the Reeves case, it's Reeves versus Ernst and Young, was a Supreme Court case back in 1990. And again, some of our listeners might not be familiar with it, so we'll go through it relatively quickly. The the question in Reeves was whether under the Exchange Act, the 34 Act, demand notes offered by a business to finance its general operations were securities. Stated differently, what kind of instrument qualifies as a note that can be regulated mm-hmm. as a security, right? Because on, you look at the language of the 34 Act, there's a list of things that can be securities and tucked in there is, right. is a note, right? So <laughs> this case sort of explains what is the what are the characteristics of a note that we think make it a security 
And you know, now people are just looking more broadly at these char- characteristics to say, does the thing, does the product that we're talking about kind of look like that? Let's kind of walk through it. Let's walk through it quickly. We don't need to go back through all the facts. I think you've got enough company issues notes. And the question is, are they securities? The Supreme Court was willing to presume that notes that had a maturity of nine months or more were in fact securities. That was just the baseline. If it's nine months or longer maturity, we're going to treat it as a security. Uh, But that presumption was rebuttable, according to the court in one of two ways. So the first way is that you could rebut the presumption that a note nine months or longer was a security was by showing that the instrument bears a strong family resemblance to, that's that's the term of art, bears a strong family resemblance to. That's right, I I love that. It it makes me think about my my siblings (laughs) and my extended relatives, how much we look like each other or not. And whether we are in the same family, we'll save that for for, a side episode. Tell me which one of you is a security, but we'll we'll talk. (laughs) All right, so you can rebut the presumption if the product bears a strong family resemblance to one of the following, I'll go through them quickly. A note delivered in consumer financing, a note secured by a mortgage on a home, a short-term note secured by a lien on a small business or its assets, a note evidencing a character loan to a bank customer, a short-term note secured by the assignment of accounts receivable, a note that formalizes an open account debt incurred in the ordinary course of business, or a note evidencing loans by commercial banks for current operations. So I'll just give my quick little spin on on the seven. Basically, they look more like loans than they look like something that you invested in 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 hope or expectation of receiving some kind of yield. So Mm -hmm. that's how I think about the seven. And you could see that from an operational perspective of a business, right? There may be efforts undertaken that are pretty clear cut in terms of what you'd expect to to be qualified as a note. But as you start to get more creative in your financing, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes around that, you know, I think that's where you start to maybe toe the line of, of leaving the family resemblance and moving much more towards uh, towards the security side of the coin. But Kurt, as always, to only spin up the complexity of any legal analysis here, if you don't bear a strong family <laughs> resemblance to one of those seven categories you brought up, the presumption around that that Reeves test of nine months may be rebutted if the balance of four of the following factors indicates that the note is not a security. And I'll rip through them quickly here. Uh, those f- four factors are the motivations of the buyer and seller, the plan of distribution, the reasonable expectations of the investing public, and risk reducing considerations. And there are specific elements around those as well, Kurt. I don't know if you want to touch on a few you've dealt with, but it really looks to, again, kind of push the analysis back towards the note side of the coin uh, instead of leaning into that securities bucket. Yeah, I mean, look, I so I think of these four as somewhat more subjective, right? The first, the first seven, you know, objectively, does it look more like a, a loan or more like, you know, an investment where you expect some kind of yield? The second, you know, set of of factors that the courts will look at, to me, feel more subjective. You know, what did the specific plan of distribution say? What can we glean from that? What were the motivations of the buyer and seller? Is this publicly available? And do the people who are buying it think they're investing in something, right? So again, I I think we can boil these down a a little bit, but you know, it's interesting. You've got got a note nine months or more, you're gonna rebut that presumption through one one of two ways. And it's sort of looking at what does it look like and what do people think it is? Which yeah, seems I, kind of fair. You could make right? that argument. Break it it down does like make that. sense. But I yeah. think that might, Kurt, <laughs> leave a little bit of room for analysis and, and potential argument around those. You know, so I think it really is in all of these cases, right? And we're seeing them develop on the crypto side more so than others, is to understand that these cases are very, very fact specific in terms of what the analysis should be. And I know you yeah, and, and your absolutely. folks work very hard on those types of things. And then, you know, when, when things come before the commission and, and those arguments are made, you know, we can see which way the needle might point as, as those arguments come out. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's keep moving. So that was the first big question. What is a security? Let's move on to another important question, which is how much deference do we owe the SEC to interpret the federal securities laws? Yeah, and I think the, when we talk about you know that deference for what can be interpreted from the federal securities law, it really looks to 
understand the role of the SEC in, in that specific space, right? And as again, as, as a lay person, I'll, I'll call myself from a, a legal perspective, right? There are so many cascading jurisdictional issues around securities law. Federal, we've talked about, you know, some of the blue sky laws from a state perspective with Vince Martinez from NASA. You know, a lot of this can be, you know, tweaked in a way to, to make arguments a little bit more complex and sometimes harder for guys like me, Kurt, to understand. Uh, but here we're sitting right in that very federal securities law space. And and I know, at least by name, one of the cases that helped define this area for the SEC was Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council. Talk to us a little bit, Kurt, about the Chevron case. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it gave rise to the phrase Chevron deference, which I know we've talked about on the podcast a, a bunch of times. I don't think it's quite at Reg BI levels, but it's it's probably featured prominently a few times. And, and really, Chevron deference refers to, again, the ruling that came out of this case, Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc., the NRDC. And, and it says the circumstances in which you need to give deference to a federal agency's interpretation of a body of law or statutes that it is tasked with overseeing or implementing. So in that case, again, this sort of landmark case setting some, some broad bounds for what federal agencies can and should do, the Supreme Court instructed the lower courts to apply a two-part test when reviewing an agency's construction of a law that it administers. The first question was whether Congress has, quote, directly spoken to the precise question at issue, and if Congress has unambiguously expressed its intent in the law, right, it's sort of there in black letters, it's plain, then the court doesn't really need to adhere to an agency's interpretation. It sounds, Kurt, like we're getting into that kind of civics lesson from back in, in middle school and high school, right? Is who who <laughs> right. owns this? And, and if Congress has written a law that is directed directly at this, then the legislature reigns supreme. But if not, you know, we, we can start to see that move into the executive branch about about how these should be be interpreted and that falling under that, yeah. that kind of agency level of interpretation. That's right. So you're you're hinting at part two of the test, right? So part one is, has Congress spoken about this plainly? Part two is, if not, if they have not, quote, directly addressed the precise question at issue, end quote, a court cannot impose its own understanding of the law. So that's where the deference comes in. Essentially, the courts should defer to the agencies who are tasked with overseeing or administering a particular set of laws or statutes. So if the particular law is, quote, silent or ambiguous, end quote, on a specific issue, then the agencies kind of get to say what it means. Uh, this is, of course, kind of confusing for the courts because, you know, for a couple hundred years now, they've been tasked with telling us what the law yeah, means. Inter interpreting right. laws generally, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. And so in this space, they just said, no, we're not going to do it. We've got these agencies, specialized agencies, with subject matter experts. And if Congress sort of devolves to those agencies the administration or oversight of certain laws, and they give them some leeway to figure out how to do that or figure out what it means, then we, the courts, are going to respect that. That said, Chevron still stands, but it has come under fire in, in recent years. You know, from time to time, I think there are waves where we hear a lot about people needing to overturn or pare back Chevron. We're in, we're in one of those waves now. It's been going on for, for a few years now, where it seems like some courts are, are maybe on the edge, maybe on the precipice of getting ready to carve back Chevron. They, they haven't really done it yet, mm -hmm. right? And, and there have been a a couple cases that have come through that, you know, folks watching the court have been waiting to see, is this the one? Is this the one? And it's not always because people really care about the actual, you know, rule or agency that's out there doing something. What they really want to see is, is this when the court is going to start to pare back that Chevron deference? But we haven't seen it yet. And, and one in particular that I'll just highlight because it was a matter that relates to the SEC. It was Digital Realty versus, uh, versus Summers. And that case had to do with the SEC's whistleblower rules. And essentially, the case asked whether the SEC's interpretation of, of the definition of whistleblower deserved deference. Mm -hmm. And I think 
a lot of people thought that this was going to be the moment, right? Because yeah. there were sort of strong arguments on both sides. And at the end of the day, I won't say the court punted. They just didn't have to address the issue because they said that the statute Dodd-Frank is where you'll find the definition of whistleblower for the purposes of the SEC's program. They said Dodd-Frank was clear. It was precise. And so that carries the day. Yep. And we, we don't need to think about how the SEC interprets it. And, you know, largely saved for another day this question of when they would defer to the SEC or other agencies more generally. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it falls right under that kind of first bucket of analysis and that Dodd-Frank, for those of you who, who maybe aren't as familiar, was an act of Congress passed in 2010. Thereby, Congress is speaking directly to that issue, thereby, thereby ruling out on this. And I wonder, Kurt, you know, it seems that there could be a significant amount of political push and pull on this, on this specific issue for Chevron deference, right? As you see different different political postures, you know, supporting, you know, more congressional involvement versus other postures looking for more of an executive involvement. You know, to me, it's really a question of, of convenience in certain respects, too. If Congress has to write a very specific law for every issue that's ever to come up, that seems really inefficient and probably unreasonable for, you know, a single legislative body to have to dictate all of these but you can also imagine a world in which Congress is silent about everything and you've got these unelected officials who've been appointed, you know, deciding these matters of law from the executive agencies that that oversee these these areas. So we're really looking for almost that Goldilocks kind of middle ground of where do we have the space to have an understanding from, you know, those elected officials who've legislated and where do we not have that yeah. space but have some interpretation that we think is reasonable related to these issues. Is that fair? To think of? Yeah, I mean, look, it's become like many things. I think very political. the The lines, I think, are fairly clear. Generally, generally, mm -hmm. yeah, we're not making <laughs> think, political statements right. here. We're just commenting I, I think on the discussion. Folks who who are on the right side of the aisle want to r reduce the involvement of the of the administrative state mm -hmm. in making decisions about what the laws mean or how they should be interpreted and and applied. And and folks on the other side of the aisle are okay with you know deferring to the agencies some of these decisions. They would say, we have experts there that know what they're doing. That's why we have them, right? Mm -hmm. Congress can't speak to everything yeah. you know, in sort of precise, minute detail. And most of the time, this works, mm -hmm. right? We, we do get that balance, right, that you're talking about. But sometimes you find these, these gray areas, right? Like you can imagine, there could be some fights along these lines relating to things like ESG, yep. right? So maybe <laughs> the current commission thinks it's well within the securities yep. laws to require certain types of disclosures, and maybe others will say, I think that's sort of out of bounds. Let's go back and see what the statute says. Mm -hmm. You know, is it is it clear and unambiguous? Maybe that's that's what we're going to find about. But so I, I I think you're right. This is sort of a political issue, but a lot of the time it's not an issue at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're seeing, we're highlighting the exceptions to the rule. The rule seems to operate with a reasonable degree of, of execution over the period. And again, this relates, you brought up the ESG example, this relates to the federal securities laws. I know there have been specific states in recent months who've taken a position on ESG. Yeah. This would be a whole other analysis and a whole other idea behind that. Yep, absolutely right. Okay, so yeah, before we put know, our foot in our mouths from a political perspective, <laughs> it may be too late, but we're going to carry on. <laughs> you know, Kurt, one of the other things we wanted to talk about, and you and you hinted at up front, is who makes the statements or representations that may form the basis of a securities fraud claim. And there's a couple of cases we'll talk about here that fall under that 10b five kind of securities fraud yep. at jurisdiction. And, and I encourage all of you, if you have not familiarized yourself with 10b-5, it's something that, that made me feel a little bit smarter uh, when I started getting into this, this world of practice. But, you know, there's clear-cut circumstances where securities fraud is, is evident, right? Kurt, not all cases are as clear-cut as that. And one of the, the cases that brought up some interesting questions around the statements made that underpin a securities fraud claim came to us in 2011, that being the Janus Capital Group Incorporated versus First Derivative Traders. And that's something that went up to the Supreme Court and actually, I think, sent shockwaves, I'll use that phrase, through the securities world when that ruling came down. Yeah, Janus gets at, you know, this, this key question that we're talking about is who makes a statement? 
right? Does it have to be the person who actually writes the words, the person that signs the document? You know, I, I think they talk in Janice about a speechwriter, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in that case, who owns that statement? Who makes that statement? The person that's writing the speech or the person that stands on the stage and delivers it? But I just want to take a step back because this all matters because of how we think about potential violations of the federal securities law. So you, you talked a little bit about Rule 10b-5. Rule 10b-5 is sort of the broad don't don't defraud people mm-hmm. in the securities markets rule, but it has three sub-provisions that, that sort of matter, right? So, you know, they're A, B, and C. So A says you can't employ any device, scheme, or artifice to defraud. C, and I'm, I'm purposefully going out of order, C says you can't engage in any act, practice, or course of business which operates or would operate as a fraud or deceit upon any person. We generally read those two together. Um, you can do either or or both, but that is what you would call scheme liability. Yeah, right? kind like of a catch-all sort of, for, for that activity. Right. You're, you're engaged in some kind of scheme to defraud. Mm-hmm. And those would be secondary violations, right? You don't necessarily need to be the person at the heart of the fraud. Mm-hmm. You can just be be wrapped up in it. You can be helping it along the way, right? And you're going to be secondarily liable. That matters just in terms of outcomes, whether you're in an enforcement context or you know, private litigation yeah. context. B, which I skipped over, says that you cannot make any untrue statement of a material fact or to omit to state a, a material fact necessary in order to make the statements made in light of the circumstances under which they were made not misleading. Many of us can probably recite that. <laughs> made, making, made, while right. the statements made were made. Well, so, so you're, you, you've hit on it, right? <laughs> made, make, right? And so that's the question. That's the question in Janus right. is when does a, a person, when does an entity make an untrue statement of material fact that could violate Rule 10b-5b and give rise to primary yep. liability, right? Not just and again, the scheme liability we talked right, about in ANC. Your, your outcomes are going to start to get worse when you are primarily responsible mm-hmm. for the fraud. You know, there are other there are other questions that sort of run from this analysis, but here's sort of where the Janus Court came out. Again, I'll go back. They said the speechwriter does not control the content of a speech even though they wrote it, the content is exclusively within the control of the person who delivers it. And therefore, a speechwriter is not a maker of a speech and therefore couldn't be primarily liable under 10b-5b, even if all the other elements are mm-hmm. satisfied. So that's sort of how they, how they analyzed it. Yeah, the thing that stuck out to me, Kurt, is the phrase that gets thrown around in the, in the discussion of Janice, and that's ultimate authority. And I, you know, obviously not being an attorney, I can see that that being used or potentially misused in a variety of different ways. You know, that ultimate authority speaks to that speech writer versus speech maker. You can imagine someone drafting up the commentary to be provided on an earnings call for the CEO or the CFO to provide. That individual drafting that information, you could understand, would not have the ultimate authority, but would be the person who would not be subject to, you know, a suit in this case for securities fraud. If those statements were untrue and made by the CEO or the CFO as executives, you could see them having that, quote, ultimate authority by which they come out. But, you know, for Janus itself, there were some other issues around the way information was presented in the specific mutual fund prospectuses that were being provided by Janus. The suit came about related to the statements that were made in those prospectuses, and Janus was found to not have that ultimate authority representing the statements in those prospectuses. So it obviously this very complex case in terms of what the details are there. But yeah. you can see how the analysis around ultimate authority can break into a lot of different arguments for individuals facing a securities fraud claim. You know, are you a, a representative of a of a company that's named in the lawsuit that's maybe affiliated with the ultimate authority 
for making those statements. And maybe that specific company or that specific affiliation is not, uh, you know, liable under that that primary uh, primary uh, securities fraud violation, as well as you know those complex legal structures between funds and investment advisors. You know, making the statement itself is really divided from who has the ultimate authority for that. So those even as insiders who are speaking publicly on behalf of their company may have mm-hmm. some some ability to push back and say it's the company's information that they're sharing not statements that they are they're making on on their own. So, Kurt, I don't know if you've got any other specific examples, yeah. but there's a variety of different arguments that pop into my head when we talk about ultimate authority. No, I, th- I think it's good. And that's why I think it's a good segue into the next case, which is Lorenzo v. SEC, because you start to see how how this analysis plays out in some very specific circumstances, that's right. right? So, I mean, Lorenzo, I always refer to as the copy and paste case, mm-hmm. because that's Sort of what happened here, right? You, <laughs> Let's just say it's changed the way I viewed forwarding emails, Kurt. How's that yes, ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> so in in Lorenzo, you had a fairly senior employee who was essentially forwarding emails that were prepared by someone else out to you know customers or clients or to the market generally. In some cases, I think it was just a straightforward. In other cases, I think they would you know cut and paste into a new email chunks of of this other email that Mm -hmm. was written by someone else. And so the the question was, if all you're really doing is forwarding or copying and pasting, are you making a statement? And so, I mean, Chris, how did the court think about that? I think they really got back into that discussion of the maker. You know, the defense here, Lorenzo was leaning on his supervisor, having literally written the language that was forwarded and, quote, approved the messages. And the actual information was around a an offering that had confirmed assets of $10 million, as represented in the email message sent, when Lorenzo himself knew that the company's actual assets at the time were worth less than $400,000, right? So you can see a huge difference there. And Lorenzo was arguing that, in fact, he did not have that ultimate authority in making those statements. The court ultimately decided that Lorenzo was not a maker of the statements, Essentially because he didn't write it. And so just disseminating, I think that was sort of the key word, just Mm -hmm. disseminating the false statements was not going to give rise to liability, primary liability, right, under 10b-5b. You know, I think the the court was pretty careful to point out that Lorenzo was still on the hook. I was going to say, yeah, it's not a a great day for Lorenzo generally, right? (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. But I do think at the time... You know, folks had a couple different a couple different ways to think about this. I mean, one was does it does it narrow what it means to be a maker of a mm-hmm. statement? But I guess the other, and I think this was maybe the the more popular take, was that the ruling essentially expanded what scheme liability means yeah. because Lorenzo's involvement was a little bit more direct because there was evidence that Lorenzo actually knew mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm that he was sending around via email was incorrect or misleading, mm-hmm. you know, to, to say the least. And so a lot of people looked at that and just said, I mean, the, the, the guy is sending an email. It's got his signature at the bottom. He knows that the statements in it are false. Surely we're going to attribute that to this individual. And the court said no. Yep. Kind of backed away from that. So We'll see, right? If, if those of you in the investment community are out there copy and pasting things as a test, again, this, this podcast is not legal or accounting advice, so we would not advise you to do that one way or another. <laughs> but I think, yeah, we're, we're really seeing where that maker argument comes in and, and where that yeah. can play. And Lorenzo did a, a fine job of tweaking what we understood you know, under the prior case. Absolutely. All right, Chris, we've been we've been going at this for a while, but I think we've got one more question, one more foundational question that we want to answer, and that is what is the statute of limitations for SEC enforcement actions and I'm still not sure, so I'm going to let you take it. <laughs> if you're not sure, Kurt, we're in trouble. You know, we've <laughs> talked a lot about you know, we, I'll preface, you know, what we've already talked about is really kind of about liability, right? Or, or you know, oversight, regulatory from, from a securities perspective. This, we're now going to, to issues of timing. And one of the cases that, that came around, I believe, five years ago now in 2017, uh, related to Kokesh, which we talked about up front. And that really gets down to the understanding of the tools that the SEC has to 
levy against violators of, of the securities laws. Fines and penalties are, are seen as both, you know, the ability for the SEC to penalize the the wrongdoers or the violators here, but also, you know, to send a message right to the market about what will happen to you if you also violate the securities laws. But it also allows for what's called disgorgement. And I can hear everybody on listening going, ooh, disgorgement. Chris, what could disgorgement be? Basically, right, there's, there's a lot of ways to interpret it, but basically that's taking what might be the unjust enrichments enjoyed by, say, an investment advisor who has taken your money and, and defrauded you of it and maybe even made some gains on that money, right? Returning, mm-hmm. Kurt, your $100 would be, yep. you know, a penalty or an equitable remedy for, for what you invested. But what what's to what is the SEC to do with Chris, with me, having made $25 off your 100 You know, it could also be seen as, as a profit there. So, you know, in 2017, in the Kokesh case, uh, there was discussion around the appropriateness of disgorgement. But in this matter, prior to this ruling in 2017, the SEC really kind of had carte blanche to decide the significance, the long-running unjust enrichment for a business, right, Kurt? If that investment happened back in 1980 and the suit came before the SEC in 2010, you could see how the SEC may look and say, hey, you unjustly enriched yourself in in 1980. We should be able to disgorge you of those Mm -hmm. ill-gotten gains. Kokesh came through and really asked the question around what constitutes a penalty and what is an equitable remedy under the SEC's purview. Kurt, so talk to us a little bit about where that decision came out from the penalty side uh, and what the implications are from a timing perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Kokesh was, as you said, sort of asking, what is the SEC doing or, or how are they doing it, right? They sort of said, we're going to assume for purposes of our decision today that you have the right to seek disgorgement at all, right? That it's an mm-hmm. equitable remedy available to the SEC. And we know that you have the ability to seek you know, penalties, m- civil monetary penalties in an SEC enforcement action. And they were sort of looking at how the SEC was treating these two different remedies. And on balance, what they found was that the way in practice that the SEC was using the disgorgement remedy felt more like a penalty, right? Mm -hmm. And I think some of that had to do with how they were calculating the amount of the disgorgement. Those darn accountants. I know, those darn accountants. And and it sort of matters because you have different statutes of limitation available depending on whether you are seeking an equitable remedy or civil monetary Mm -hmm. sanctions. The SEC would tend to try to grab more through the disgorgement remedy because they had a, a longer statute of limitations there than than in the other bucket. And I think the, the court was just kind of uncomfortable with how they were calculating it. So what they said is, if you're going to keep doing it this way, we're going to look at this as a penalty. But there may be a way for you to actually treat disgorgement as just straight disgorgement. And that is maybe an accounting question for you, Chris. It's, it's one we deal with. And I think, you know, Kurt, to, to sum up your analysis there, the implication of the court's ruling was to limit disgorgements to a five-year statute of limitations under the applicable statute for penalties of 28 U.S.C. Section 2462, thereby pushing a a kind of a a stopgap there for how far back you could go to disgorge these ill-gotten gains. And you could imagine a 15-year securities fraud happening and the majority of the, the unjust enrichment happening in years 1 through 12 the SEC is saying you can only capture years 11 and 12 there, right? Because yeah. you've got a five-year cap. So the defense bar and, and many, you know, felt this this was kind of a, you know, a pivot to a different posture around, you know, reclaiming that. And, and even even in admitted cases, right, in settled cases of securities fraud, you'd be limited yeah. in in how much could be could be captured. But, Kurt, as we've talked about in, in most of our topics today, a second case really came in to you know, tweak what we saw in Kokesh a little bit more, and that is the mm-hmm. third and final of our alliterative cases we're talking about today, uh, the SEC <laughs> versus Lou. You know, we don't need to get into the facts of the Lou case specifically, but what the ruling came down from the Supreme Court was around how the definition of the monies available for disgorgement is defined. And the phrase that is used is net profits, right? And and secondarily to that, and we'll talk about this in a second too, is how those monies after being disgorged should be utilized. And there's some technicalities there around what is being utilized to repay harmed investors versus what's going to the U.S. Treasury. You know, obviously we could do a whole episode on that. But Kurt, obviously you know me. I hear an accounting term of art 
net profits and immediately start to think in a variety of different ways for how this could be calculated. Again, yep. in the $100 investment from Kurt to Chris, Chris, you know, absconds or, or inappropriately invested and makes $125, you know, and, and buy myself a Ferrari for $100. You know, I've taken your $100 and I've made myself $25 of, we'll say, revenue. But let's say my expenses in making that $25 of revenue was $22 of, of expenses, right? Therefore, there's only really $3 of net profit uh, that might fall under this disgorgement. And I've done a lot of research on this and accounting firms you know, across the spectrum work on these as well. What is the appropriate calculation of net profits now that Lou has made that the standard by which disgorgement should be calculated? Kurt, you and I have had a ton of discussions both on the podcast and off about how this is considered in negotiations, right, between the SEC yeah. and, and a firm. You know, if disgorgement is going to be a very large number or a very small number, you know, these you know potential violators or alleged violators may have a different posture about settling. And and obviously we've talked and I've written a bunch on, on kind of the inappropriate accounting that might come in where I've actually only spent $5 of expenses on on you know making that ill-gotten twenty-five dollars on your money, Kurt. But maybe I am cooking the books, if you will, to say that I've actually spent twenty-two dollars of expenses and you know misapplying overhead or, or, or misclassifying expenses to be able to show that my net profits are lower, thereby having a, a less of a disgorgement number. So I'm going to slow down a bit because my heart's racing. I'm getting really excited talking about accounting <laughs> for disgorgement, Kurt. But I want you to weigh in on the Lou case and what you see the implications are too. Yeah, I mean, look, top line, one important thing Lou did was say the SEC absolutely has the authority to seek disgorgement as a remedy, right? It was sort of a, a question that was left open after Kokesh. Yeah. Kokesh was really just worried about, you know, if you have it, how far back can you go? And Lou says you definitely do have it as long as you calculate the amount of that disgorgement in the ways that we would traditionally think about it in you know, a court sitting in equity, mm -hmm. right? And that's sort of the analysis that you're that you're getting at, Chris. For some period of time after Kokesh and Lou, the SEC's response was really, well, we're just going to reallocate, right? So we, we'll take the most conservative route with respect to the disgorgement. And, you know, Chris, you're right. Of course, a company could be cooking the books with respect to whether there was legitimate overhead expenses mm -hmm. or something, right? At the end of the day, you, you kind of got to go with, with what, what you can find out through your investigation. But let's take the most conservative approach. That probably means a smaller disgorgement number. But we got a lot of room to slide some of the rest of that over into the penalties bucket. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what you started seeing happening. And I mean, there were, a, there were a bunch of speeches and statements about this. I know, you know, Stephanie Avakian, when she was the director of enforcement, at least twice that I recall gave speeches where she said, we're, we're just gonna have to kind of right side the allocation yeah. here. This doesn't mean that, you know, the penalties and disgorgement are gonna fall off a cliff. We just maybe need to sharpen our pencils and, and get the accounting staff to do a little bit more work on this question. Yep because we've been using them to do other helpful stuff, but that's okay. Like we can do this too. <laughs> <laughs> we're multifaceted, Kurt, right? We're not we're not just in right. one lane with the green yeah, visors exactly. and the suspenders. But, you know, the the other thing that happened, yeah, I guess it was about a year or so after Lou was we got a a legislative fix that's if right. you will to this question. Congress amended the securities laws to give the SEC a longer statute of limitations to seek disgorgement. And mm -hmm. so whereas in a post-Kokesh world, people were really thinking it's five years. Now it is, you know, black letter law, 10 years, disgorgement, provided you're doing it, calculating it, you know, the, the, the way that the court wants you to and the way that you've talked about, Chris. And, and I'll leave this kind of ambiguous thought for the end is, let's say your case happened under the Kokesh regime, but is now being litigated or, or you know, filed under uh, under that DCAA update. You know, how many years back can your disgorgement go? I think that's an that's an open question for a lot of of cases that may fall in that that specific time window. It's a fun question. We get any time you know <laughs> Congress amends one of the acts or issues a new rule. It's like which regime am I under? That's right. Or, or how should I account for this? Yeah, exactly right. You know, it, it's probably going to be whatever the rule is on the day that the SEC brings the case. 
but I'll, I'll let you yeah, well, that with your friends over a cocktail. Later. I was going to say, logic maybe doesn't always rule the day when it comes down to some of that. So, no. listeners, we want to thank you guys for giving us a chance to really jump into that that wonky side of, of what we like to talk about here. You know, it's always good to kind of check in on where case law has started and where it's taking us. One of our, you know, focuses here on the Insecurities Podcast is really to keep learning. And a part of that is to come back to some of those cases that have really shifted the regime we're operating under. So, Kurt, I know we we limited ourselves, or I'll say we, I limited you to only a handful of cases we could talk about as it relates to the SEC. If listeners, you have cases that you'd like to hear more about, please let us know. You know, we'll do our research and maybe have a guest or two on that either participated in those cases or even, you know, has some some thought leadership on those that we could share with you just to add a little bit more clarity to, to how folks are thinking about securities law today and what the precedence is. Yeah, I would be happy to. I mean, I, I set aside an entire body of case law that relates only to insider trading. You know, we didn't do Dirks, Chiarella, O'Hagan, <laughs> Newman, Salmon, right? Yep. Like, that's all out there. We could do a whole episode on that, and I, w- I would love to do it. But yeah, please, listeners, chime in. Let us know if you think we missed your favorite SEC Supreme Court case. <laughs> yeah, we got to put a poll out on Twitter, you know. Which of these is your favorite SEC Supreme maybe Court? Le- maybe least favorite is the way we should ask it. They tend to not be super <laughs> yeah, popular decisions. <laughs> still still a place where, where folks will uh, vent their grievances, right, in terms of those polls. So, yeah. Awesome, Kurt. Great chatting with you. You too, buddy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.